If you got your Bibles this morning, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we will try to cover, um, we're going to try to cover about half the chapter this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. So as everybody knows, we are just going through the book of 1 Corinthians and just covering whatever uh, Paul has to uh, talk about. Our, the title of our lesson this morning is Principles of Marriage. Principles of Marriage. Now, as we've seen over the last few weeks in our study, and, and, and you know, we've mentioned it and we've talked about it in our, in our lesson, there were some people in the Corinthian church who had a, a, a pretty seriously perverted view of morality. Uh, you know, they were, they were allowing incest in the church. They were getting drunk at the Lord's uh, Supper. They were suing one another. They had all kind of messes going on. And they were using false teaching to justify their immoral behavior. But at the same time, I want to make sure we understand that we don't lose sight of the fact that there were people in the church who wanted to do the right thing. Okay, so this, this church just wasn't full of a bunch of people who wanted to do the wrong thing. There were people in the church who wanted to do the right thing. And they, they loved the Apostle Paul. Uh, they had great respect for him. So what they would do is they would write him letters. Of course, he had left uh, the, the city of Corinth a, a year or two back, and he was off starting churches in other places, so they would write him letters. And in these letters, they would tell what was going on in the church, and they would also ask his advice on certain things, because they had a lot of questions that they needed, they needed answers on. For example, they said, what if I go to the market and, and there's meat for sale, and this is meat that's been offered in the temple to idols or to demons. Should I buy that meat? Is it okay to eat it? That was a question they had. They had questions about the role of, of women uh, in the church. They had questions about the Lord's Supper. You know, when should they do it? How often should they do it? Who should it be allowed to partake in it? They had all kinds of questions. And Paul's going to answer these questions later in the chapter. But they also had a lot of questions with regards to uh, marriage. Now... In order to see why they had so many questions with regards to marriage, I think we need to get a little context here. Again, as I mentioned last week, we have 2,000 years of Christianity to draw on. So most of us don't have necessarily the same questions they had. But remember, they didn't have 2,000 years of Christianity. They didn't have a Bible. The New Testament was still being written. So they had a lot of questions. So I think it would help us to understand kind of the context of the times uh, to see why marriage was such a big problem uh, for them. Now, they had uh, the, the, one of the reasons marriage was such a big problem, and they had so many questions about it, is because there was really no one way to get married in that society. In fact, there were four different ways. Uh, one of the ways that you could get married is they had what was called a slave marriage. Now, in Roman times, slavery was very common. Okay? But they didn't, they didn't do what, what, what America did in the 17 and 1800s. They didn't enslave a race. They were an equal opportunity enslaver. And they would go to foreign lands. They would fight a battle. They would bring back, back prisoners, and they would make them slaves. Very common to do that. Uh, they also, slavery was something that you could sell yourself into. If you had a debt 
that you couldn't pay. Many times you would sell yourself into slavery for two years or five years or ten years or even your family in order to pay off that debt. So, so slavery was something that was very, very common. And, and a slave, of course, uh, lived and died at the behest of their, of their master. They didn't have any rights as a citizen. They, uh, you know, they couldn't do things like go get married or, or get divorced or anything like that. And so what they would do, but they wanted to get married because they're just regular people. And so what they would do is they would go to their owner and they would ask the owner permission to get married. And the owner would give them something called a contubernium. And it literally means a tent companionship. He would say, okay, y'all two, y'all two can be tent companions. And he would give them permission. And then they would, they would live together as husband and wife. Now... If the owner changed his mind um, or he decided to sell one of them off, there was nothing they could do about it. The marriage was over. They might not ever see that person again. So again, here they are, but if they can get married with the owner's permission, they do, but there's no legal document. There's no, uh, there's no ceremony. There's, there's nothing. So that was one way you could get uh, married. And the reason, by the way, that this affected the church so much, because in the early church... A a vast majority of the members of the early church were slaves and ex-slaves. You know, people joining the church weren't the the nobles. They weren't the kings. They weren't the the, the highfalutin people. It it was slaves and ex-slaves that were coming into the church. And so they were coming in with all of these kind of odd marital situations and very mixed up backgrounds. And Paul, what does, you know, think about that. What does Paul say to them? Was that a real marriage? Was it not a real marriage? He has to kind of figure all this out. Another uh, thing that they had, another way to get married in Roman times is what we would today consider a common law marriage. In Roman society, if a man and a woman lived together for one year, if you had been living together for one year, then in the eyes of the government, in the eyes of society, you were married. Okay, now, Florida, for example, does not have, does not recognize common law marriage. Georgia does. Uh, there are several states in the U.S. that recognize if a man and woman live together for a particular amount of time, in the eyes of the government, they, they will, when it comes time, if y'all separate, they, the government can look at you as husband and wife. That's called a common law marriage. Again, there's no ceremony. There's no legal document that says you were married. It's just you've been together for a certain amount of time. So you had these people coming into the church. And what does Paul say to them? Is that a real marriage? Is it not a real marriage? He has to, you know, what's he gonna, how's he going to deal with that? Um, we also in Roman times, uh, which we don't have anymore, is what was called forced marriage. This was basically when a father would sell his daughter to a husband. It was, about, it was pretty much like buying a horse. You just bought a wife, um, you know, and, and the girl may not want to be married. She may not love the guy. She had no choice whatsoever. They, she would just be sold off and to be Mary, again, now it was basically a legal contract. Well, what if she comes into the church? Does, what does Paul say about that? You've got you to stay there? You, you know, that's a real marriage? Is it not a real marriage? So you, got, you can imagine all this stuff going on. And then, of course, they did have what we would consider normal marriages. It was called in, in, in the Latin, it was called a conferitio. It's basically a, a marriage of choice. A man and a woman come together. They want to be married. There's a ceremony. There's a legal document. And, and the whole nine yards. So you had all these different ways of, of people could be considered to be marriage. Now, 
to, to all of that, add to the fact that in Roman society, divorce was rampant. Um, if you go back and read the history documents on this, I mean, people, men would divorce their wives because they wanted to marry a richer woman. They divorced their wives because she burned his supper. They, I mean, she would li- they just divorced for, for no reason. I, I mentioned this, uh, I've mentioned this a couple times here on sermons, where there's actually records uh, where Roman citizens have been married 25, 26, 27, 28 times. I mean, now that just shows you their view of marriage. When you're married, I thought, you know, I, I was, when I was putting this all together, I was thinking, I remember... There's some movie stars. If anybody out here, y'all know who Zsa Zsa Gabor is, right? Uh, you know, kids don't know who that is. But I think she was married like eight times. And we would consider that a lot, right? But they had people married 27 times. Now, I did get curious, by the way. And I thought, well, you know, that was back then. That really couldn't happen today. We wouldn't, nobody today. So I, I went, I Googled it. And by the way, there is a guy. His name is Glenn Wolf. He died in 1997 from California. He was married 29 times. And his shortest marriage was 19 days. His longest marriage was 11 years. And the part I cannot get my head around is he was a Baptist minister. That's the part I couldn't get my head around. So he died in 97. So, you know, I tell you, the more I study 1 Corinthians and the more I read this letter, I'm telling you, it is just as relevant today as it was then. Absolutely. I'm telling you, the more, I, the more I see it, people do not change. Human nature does not change. It was the same 2,000 years ago as it is today. We may have more technology, more way to sin, more way to do things, but I'm telling you, the people do not change. You, you see it, and so that's why this letter is so, so relevant. So in all of that society, in all that confusion about marriage... And all that, the fact that people are getting divorced, all these multiple times, Paul comes into this city, he preaches, people get saved, and they, they start a church, right? And keep in mind, people are coming into the church from all of these different marital situations, right? And Paul has to, has to deal with this. Now, if you, if you think about Paul, he's kind of got a mess on his hands, right? I mean, how do you, what kind of teaching do you give people to deal with all of this thing. Now, Paul does something, and I want you to listen to me very closely, because I think this is one of the greatest things about the Bible. And that is this. How is Paul going to deal with all this? Well, I'm going to tell you how Paul deals with it. He never dwells on the past. Paul never dwells on the past. In fact, you can extrapolate that to the whole Bible. The Bible never dwells on the past. The Bible never points its finger at you and said, you shouldn't have done that ten years ago. You shouldn't have done that five years ago. See, Paul understands that when you did those things, you weren't a child of God. You didn't know the truth. You were, a, you were a child of the devil. You were a child of the world. You were in darkness. You were doing all these things. Paul, Paul doesn't care about that. Paul's point is, what's important to Paul is what you do now. You are a Christian now. This is what you do today. So he doesn't even deal with all that. He just says, who you are today in, in, in Christ, that's what matters. Regardless of how you got to this point today, if you're a Christian, today is what matters. And I just think that is absolutely wonderful. And, and, and it's a and it's very wise thing to do. Because how could, he, how could he even have dealt with all that? He doesn't even try. He just says, 
It's about what you do now that you're a Christian. Now, again, tent companions, common law marriages, sold off by your father, you know, divorced 26 times, married by choice. He doesn't deal with any of that. Whatever your, basically what Paul will say is this, whatever your marital state today is as a Christian, he'll say it, accept it as God's will and maximize it for his glory. It's today that, that matters. That's what Paul is going to focus on. Now, I want to add one other problem before we get to the Scripture. In the midst of all this immorality, all these different types of marriages, all the divorce that was going on, a movement began to grow up in the church that just said, that this stuff is a mess. The best thing you can do is just don't get married at all. I mean, this is a movement that began to grow. Just, just forget the whole thing about, about marriage. In fact, what happened in the church is celibacy began to be looked on as a more spiritual form of Christianity. Uh, in other words, if you were single and celibate, people began to look at you as kind of a spiritual uh, elite, a, a Christian superman or a Christian superwoman because you've denied the flesh. And so this movement began to grow up that celibacy was, was the way to go. However, it got so bad that people took it too far. So pe what people would do, they were in marriages, and they saw celibacy as this, as this higher form. They would divorce their husband or divorce their wife so they could be more spiritual. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to divorce them and just go live a, a celibate life so I can be more spiritual. Other people began to, to teach that if you're a Christian and you're married to a non-Christian, that when you have relations, you're defiling yourself. And so Christians were thinking, man, I've got to divorce this pagan. I've got to get out of this. i got to get out of this marriage. And so you just had, a, you had an absolute... I mean, people had all kind of questions about, you know, you can kind of see what's going on here. So, for example, should single people get married? That was a question they had. Should married people abstain from sex? That was another question that they had. Should a Christian divorce an unbeliever? That was another question that they had. So again, we, we've got 2,000 years of Christianity. We may know the answers to these questions, but they didn't. So these were very valid questions that they have. Again, now, some of them may seem odd to us, but they were very real to new believers in ancient times. So here in the 7th chapter of Corinthians... Paul is going to answer all those questions and more. I mean, literally, if you've got a question about marriage, it's pretty much answered in this chapter. Okay, we won't get to all of it today. We'll get to a little more next week, but, uh, but we'll answer a lot of them. So in answering these questions, by the way, Paul is going to speak to four groups of people. He's going to talk to single people. He's going to talk to two married Christians. He's going to talk to Christians with a spouse who wants to... Uh, a Christian with an unbelieving spouse who wants to stay in the marriage and he's going to talk to a Christian with an unbelieving spouse who wants to leave the marriage. Everybody with me? Single, two Christians. Then he's going to talk about a mixed marriage, believer, unbeliever, one of them where the believer wants to stay, the other one where the believer wants to go. He's going to, those are the four groups. And by the way, the re, one of the reasons Corinthians is just as relevant today, because if you're a Christian, you are in one of those four groups. You're, you're one of those four groups. So any questions he answers today are just as relevant as they were uh, back then. So let's start. If you've got your Bible, uh, verse 1. Paul says this, Now concerning the things of which you wrote me. Okay, again, we talked about this. They have written him letters, and they've asked him questions. What should we do about this? 
He says this, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, the first thing Paul is going to address is being single and celibate. <clears throat> and he says this in verse 8, verse 8, To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, one thing we learn from today's passage is that Paul himself was single and he was celibate. Okay, and it was a lifestyle he wished for everyone. If you wonder, was Paul ever married? More than likely, the answer to that is yes. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. And to be a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the requirements was you had to be married. You could not be a member of the Sanhedrin without being married, and Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. So more than likely, he had been married at one point, and his wife has died. We don't know that for sure, but that's more than likely. But at this point in his life, he's single and he's celibate. And he, he, he likes it. He thinks this is, what, this is the way everybody should live. But what I want you to understand about this is Paul's reasons for seeing celibacy as good or, or being single as good are the exact opposite reasons that the world sees being single as good. You know, today in the world, people want to be single. Why? They don't want nobody tying them down. They don't want nobody telling them what they, what they can or cannot do. I'm sure most of us, I, I know uh, some young girls who are dating young men and, and they want to get married and the young men aren't interested in that at all. They don't want to be tied down. Don't want nobody tell them when they can go hunting and when they can go fishing and when they can play golf. You know, I, you're not going to tie me down. That's exactly why people today want to be single. They want to be free to just go do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. But Paul, he loved being single for one reason and one reason only, and that's because it put him at the disposal of Jesus Christ. In other words, he had one thing to worry about, and that was pleasing Jesus Christ. That was it. He didn't have to worry about anything else. There was no... I mean, think about Paul. Paul goes out on these missionary journeys. The man is, is stoned. He's beaten, he's shipwrecked, he's thrown in jail, he's, he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's cold. I mean, he goes through some things. There's no family at home that he has to worry about. He doesn't have to worry, man, if, if, if I don't make it back, who's going to take care of my family? He doesn't have to worry about that. He doesn't have to worry about, hey, man, how am I going to pay for Paul Jr.'s education? Because there is no Paul Jr., right? He doesn't have to worry about who's going to put aside money for that. He doesn't have to worry to take, about taking time to make sure his relationship with his wife is all up to snuff. Can you imagine if Paul is married and he, and he goes on his first missionary journey, right, and he comes back and he's in the house, he's like, Honey, let, like, you're not going to believe what happened. And she's like, Where have you been? <laughs> you know, you're out gallivanting around the world just going wherever you want to go, and I'm here feeding the babies and, and cleaning the house and cooking the food, and, and Paul's like, man, i got to start planning that second missionary journey here in a, in a hurry, right? But he doesn't have to, you know, we laugh at that, but there's a lot of truth in it, isn't it? And in fact, unless you think I'm putting words into Paul's mouth, later in this chapter, listen to what he says in verses 32 to 35, I want you to be free from worry, he says, because the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man has to worry about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. That's what Paul's saying. When you're married, you, you, you don't just have to worry about pleasing the Lord, you've got to worry about pleasing your wife or your husband. 
You've got to worry about your children. You, your interests are divided. So Paul says, I love being single because I can focus on Jesus and Jesus alone. I don't have to worry about anything else. So you can see Paul's reasoning when it comes to celibacy. He promoted it because when it comes to that, single people have advantages that married people do not have. Okay, so that's why he says it's a good thing. In fact, in the Greek, that word good actually has the connotations of excellence. It's an excellent thing. Why? Because you're free to serve Jesus Christ. That's why he says it's a, it's a good thing. However, Paul understands it's not for everybody. Okay? Uh, in fact, look at verse 7. Paul says this, I wish that everybody was like me, is basically what he's saying. But each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul says some people are gifted by the Holy Spirit with the ability to control sexual desire. That, that's what he says. It's a gift from God. So if you're going to do it, make sure you're gifted in that area. Because if you ain't, you're going to have a miserable life. But God will gift some people. Paul was one of those that God had gifted him with that uh, ability. But if you're not gifted in that way, what do you do? Well, Paul says it's very clear. You get married. Verse 2, let's see what it says. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. See, Paul doesn't say getting engaged is the solution to sexual temptation. He doesn't say a verbal commitment is the solution to sexual temptation. He says this, if your desire for sexual relations is too strong, get married. That's the solution, one or the other. You're single and celibate, and if your desire is too strong, then he says, get married. That's what... You see, folks, God understands sexual desire. In fact, he created it. He created it to be strong, okay? He, he knew exactly what he was doing, and he gave us a solution, and the solution is to get married. That's what I've designed it for with inside, inside of marriage. Now... Paul understands that even if you get married, that doesn't eliminate all your problems, okay? Because if you get married, there's still the sexual sin of adultery. So now what Paul is going to do in verses 3 through 5 is he's going to show us that sexual relations within marriage are meant to be a deterrent against adultery. Look at verses 3 through 5. He says this, "...the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights." and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now don't miss the word tempt there. He says, come together again. Why, Paul? Why is it important in a marriage that you have those physical relations? He says, so that tempt, Satan may not tempt you. Well, tempt you to do what? Tempt you to go outside your marriage. So what he's saying there, it's clear here from this text that sexual relations in marriage are intended to significantly weaken the temptation of adultery. Don't let Satan tempt you. Come together. That's what he's saying. So he's saying, again... Get married, but inside of marriage, there's a proper way to do things. Now, I'm not a marriage counselor, okay? And I'm not going to delve into a lot of details. Kathy told me already last week I used the word sex way too much, okay? So, so I'm trying to tone this down. 
But let me say this. Would we all agree that... I want to say one thing about this, okay? About this. And Kathy right now is saying, please don't embarrass me. Please don't embarrass me. Um, would we all agree that in a marriage, if there's anger or hurt or bitterness or resentment, that you don't even touch each other, much less go any further than that? Would we all agree with that? See, one of the things you have to understand about this passage is it's not just an exhortation to physical relations. It's really an exhortation to make sure your relationship stays where it should be. In other words, be forgiving. Ask for forgiveness, right? Um, repent. Don't go to bed angry. In other words, take care of all those, those underlying things so the physical things can stay where they're supposed to be. It's really more than the physical. It's underneath the emotional, the relational. Take care of those things. So it's really more than an exhortation to that. Because listen, when intimacy, when a marriage lacks intimacy, I'm telling you, both men and women will look for it elsewhere. That's just the way it is. And I'm not just talking about the physical. I'm talking about the emotional, too. They'll look outside if it's not in the marriage. So make sure those things stay right. And listen, don't think for a second that Satan is not watching a marriage and looking for opportunity to tempt. I mean, that's James 1.14. Keith quoted this from the pulpit last week. Temptation comes from what? Our own desire. He's looking at your desire. Is that desire being handled inside your marriage? If it's not, you're, you're, he's going to come in, he's going to tempt you outside of it. Okay, so just wanted to make sure we see that. So Paul goes on, verses 10 through 12. He says this, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, not I, but the Lord. Now, I want to deal with something real quickly here. And these are Paul's what we call Paul's disclaimers. You may notice in that scripture that Paul says something. He says, to the married, I give this charge. And then in parentheses, he says, this is not me, but this is the Lord. And then later on, he says, to the rest I say, and then in parentheses, he's saying, this is not, uh, he says, I'm saying this, not the Lord. Does everybody see that? Okay, now we need to deal with that because what's happened over the years is some people have chosen to ignore parts of this chapter. Because they'll read it and you'll say, oh, you see that? That's the Lord saying that. But this other part is just Paul's opinion. Okay, so that's, it's not really, we don't have to really behold ourselves to that. Okay, now, is that what Paul really means? Well, let's go back real quickly and read this in a little more detail. Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul says this, To the married I give this charge. And then in print he says, oh, wait just a second. This is not me, this is the Lord saying this. And then he says, The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, when Paul says this, let me tell you what he does not mean. Paul doesn't mean I went in my closet and I shut the door and I got in prayer and Jesus came to me and he, and he gave me this revelation. That's not what he's saying at all. What Paul is saying, he's saying when he says, hey, this is what the Lord says, he's saying this is what God actually, Jesus actually said when he was here on the earth. In other words, I'm just repeating his words. In fact, look at Mark 10, 9 through 10. This is Jesus quoting Genesis 2, 24. What God therefore has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus goes on in that same verse to say this. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another 
commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So what Paul is doing is saying, what I'm about to say to y'all is nothing new. Jesus already said that. I'm just reiterating. I'm just repeating what the Lord said when he was here. Everybody with me? So this is really important because he's not saying, I've got some command from the Lord. He's saying, I'm just repeating what Jesus said. And that is this, don't get a divorce. And if you do, don't remarry because you'll be committing adultery. That's what he said. And Paul says, I'm just repeating what Jesus said. Now, let me add a very quick statement here before we go too far. Paul is not dealing here with the case of adultery. He doesn't deal with that at all. Jesus taught us very clearly, if you are married and your spouse commits adultery, they are unfaithful to you, that is a, a legitimate grounds for divorce. You are free to remarry. But Paul is just dealing with the case here where that has not happened. There is no, uh, there's no adultery. Paul says, don't divorce them. And if you do divorce them, don't remarry because in doing so, you'll be committing um, adultery. Now, Paul goes on to say this, to the rest I say, now notice what he says here, this is me, not the Lord, okay? So what he's saying here is he's not saying, this is just my opinion. What he's saying is, Jesus didn't say anything about this when he was here. He didn't say anything about the particular situation that I'm going um, to talk to you about. So I'm not quoting Jesus, I'm saying this. But he is not saying at all that this is just my uh, opinion. He, what he's saying is this is new truth. Okay, We all know that the Apostle Paul, he, what he's doing here is he's putting himself on the same level as Christ in terms of revelation. He speaks with the voice of the Lord. He speaks the commands of the Lord. Okay, So again, he's not saying it's my opinion. He's just saying I'm going to give you new truth that Jesus didn't talk about when he was here. So let's see what he has to say. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, why would Paul bring this up? Okay. Well, we talked about this earlier. Let's say, for example, you've got a lady in the Corinthian church and she's been married for, let's say she's been married for 20 years to this, to this man. And she gets saved. I mean, gets radically saved. She's really saved. She wants to do what's right. She doesn't want to sin. She doesn't want to defile herself. She wants to do what's right. And in her mind, she's thinking, should I divorce this man and marry a Christian? Now, why would she be thinking that? What in her mind would think, I need to divorce this pagan and marry a Christian? Well, there's a couple reasons. First of all, the Bible teaches us that, you should, that a Christian should not marry a non-believer. Okay? 2 Corinthians 6.14 says this, Do not be equal, unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So the first thing we would teach un young people who are Christians is don't marry an unbeliever, because the Bible says don't do that. Okay, so in her mind, she may already know, man, Christians shouldn't be married to, to non-Christians. Maybe I need to divorce this guy. On the other hand, keep in mind that earlier in, the later, early in the letter, Paul said this, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
You remember what we said about that last week, that as a Christian, Christ lives in us. We belong to Him. And if a Christian joins himself to a, a prostitute, he's defiling not only himself, but he's bringing Christ into that with him. He's, he's actually bringing Christ into that sin with him. So he's defiling himself. He's, he's in a way defiling Christ. And so in her mind, you can kind of see what she might be thinking. Man, I'm a Christian. I'm trying to glorify Christ and do everything right. Is it a sin to be married to a pagan? Maybe this guy still goes down once a week to the temple of Aphrodite. And he goes down there and he offers sacrifices to demons. And she's trying to serve the Lord. And she's thinking, am I still supposed to have relations with him? If I do that, am I defiling myself? Am I bringing Christ into sin with me? Everybody with me? I mean, you can see these are perfectly legitimate questions that they, that they had. Now, see, you can kind of see why she made me thinking, man, I've got to get out of this marriage. I, I'm, I'm defiling myself. I'm, and See, I think there were some very conscientious people in that church that wanted to do the right thing. They didn't want to sin. They didn't want to defile themselves. They didn't want to bring Christ into something that wasn't right. They were very conscious. These are real... These, I mean, these, these questions had, had... I mean, they came right down to where they lived. Okay? Now, Paul, that's the issue Paul is addressing. Okay? A Christian married to an unbeliever. And he says, his answer is, no, do not divorce them. Okay? And then he explains why. Now, this is pretty cool. So watch this. This is verse 14. He says, this is why you shouldn't divorce them. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, let me explain what Paul's saying here. How many of y'all have ever heard the, the saying, bad company corrupts good morals? Right? That's scriptural, by the way. Paul said that. That's why we teach our children, and in, and in life generally, isn't it pretty much true that if you take a good kid with good morals and you mix them up with bad kids with bad morals, which one wins out? The bad. Generally in life, if you take somebody that's good morals and you mix them in, so we're always telling our kids, make sure you go with the right people, make good decisions, make sure your friends, everybody, we all do that, right? Well, see, if you're not careful, you tend to think, in, in a, like in a marriage, the bad will overcome the good. But Paul says, no. And in fact, in this case, watch what he's saying. Not only is the... Remember, the lady is thinking, if I, if I have relations with him, I'm contamin, contaminating, contaminating myself. Paul says, no, you got it backwards. In fact, not only are you not contaminated, your holiness, your Christianity actually makes the other person holy. Okay? In other words, instead of a Christian being defiled and made unholy, the unbeliever is actually made holy. Now, what Paul means is this. If you are a, a Christian and you are married to an, a non-Christian, God looks at your marriage as a fully Christian marriage. You see, God doesn't reach down into a marriage and say, I'm going to bless her but I can't bless him. Right? He doesn't try to separate it. He looks at your marriage and says, that's a holy marriage. That, that, mess, that marriage right there is lawful and good and honorable. 
In other words, when he, when he looks at your marriage, he treats your marriage as if both of you are holy. As if both of you... Does everybody see that? I mean, that is really cool to me. Listen, I'm going to give you an example here. And don't stone me. Wait till I finish my explanation. Okay? Let's say, and I'm going to give you an example. <clears throat> Let's say a married couple come to us here in the church. They come to the staff. They come to the elders. They're married, but they're not Christians. They're not believers. And they ask us to dedicate their child. Everybody with me? Our answer would be no. No, we won't do that. Now, let me explain why. Don't throw anything at me. If you've ever sat up here and listened to Pastor Henry dedicate a child, he always says the same thing. You're, we're not really dedicating the child. Who are we dedicating? You're dedicating the parents. The parents are standing up and saying, we commit to raising this child in the Lord. We commit to, to raising this child in the nurture and admission. By the way, we have had situations in this church where a couple who is living together attending this church, living together, not married, and they have a baby, and they ask us to dedicate that child. Our answer will be, no, we can't do that. How can you stand on a stage and commit to raising a child in, in, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord when you won't take the first step of obedience to get married? That, you would be lying in front of everybody. We're not going to put you up there and let you lie. That's why we say no. Everybody with me? Because you're really, it's the parents that are making the dedication. We're, we can't confer anything on a child. So we would say, no, we're not going to put you up there. Now, let's change that over a little bit. Let's say another couple come to us. The, the, the lady is, 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 is a strong Christian. The man is a pagan. And they have a child, and they say, can we dedicate that child? Our answer would be, yes. Why? Because one Christian in a marriage makes a Christian marriage. That's what Paul is saying. It's a beautiful thing. If you're here today and you're married to an unbeliever, rejoice. Because God says, I treat your marriage as a Christian marriage. I treat your husband and your children as holy, as set apart for God. And that is a beautiful thing. See, the believer in this case is like the salt, so to speak, right? And that makes the entire union holy in God's eyes. In other words, the marriage, the unbelieving spouse, the children, they are all set apart. God gives them special protection. He gives them special rights. He gives them special oversight that He does to the believing spouse. He said, I treat that whole marriage as holy. That is an, I mean, listen, if you're here today and you're a, not a believer and you're married to a Christian, you get on your knees and thank God. That means you're, you're getting benefits, you're getting blessings because of your wife or because of your husband being a believer. That's what Paul says. Now listen, this does not mean... People have tried to take this scripture sometime, which is completely wrong, and tried to teach that, well, that means that you're, if you're a, a... Let's say you're a lady who's a Christian and you're married to a, an unbelieving man, that somehow that unbelieving man is saved that that unbelieving man is, is going to, to heaven. That's not what the Bible says at all. In fact, Paul says in verse 16, look what he says, How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? The point is, you don't. This is no guarantee of their salvation, that you stay. Okay, But he says stay. And we're going to talk about this. See, there's a principle here that we'll learn next week. 
And it's a principle that goes beyond marriage. And that is when you become a Christian, you don't try to abandon relationships that you're in. You try to sanctify them. You make them holy. You make them right. You just don't run away from them. Okay, that's, that's the principle here. And we'll get into that more next week. So what this means, again, it doesn't mean that an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife is saved, but it does mean they are treated by God as being under the umbrella of that Christian spouse, and they get those benefits and blessings and protection that God affords. That's a beautiful thing. One Christian in a marriage, according to God, makes a Christian marriage, and God's blessings flow to the entire home. However, okay, Paul says one thing. If you are in that situation, you are a believer, and you're married to an unbeliever, and that unbeliever decides they don't want to be married to you any longer, they want to go, then Paul says, let them go. Look at verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, for God has called you to peace. As I mentioned earlier, the Bible clearly teaches we are not to divorce our spouses, except for in two cases. Number one, uh, Jesus said, is adultery. If If your spouse commits adultery then you can absolve the marriage and remarry. Paul now gives us a second reason, and that is desertion. If you have a spouse and that spouse leaves you and deserts you, that is completely out of your control. Paul says you are no longer in bondage. In other words, you're not, no longer under the bond of marriage. You're not in that bondage. You can, uh, you can feel free to, to, to remarry, okay? I would open this up for questions, but I may not be able to answer them. So 